Welcome, everyone, to the Wild West podcast, where we talk to the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. I'm San Francisco Chronicle travel editor Greg Thomas, and this pod is a place where I interview adventure athletes and environmental advocates and the movers and shakers who define and redefine what we do when we go outdoors. Today, I'm excited to have filmmaker Pablo Durana on the podcast. Pablo is a documentary filmmaker and cinematographer who has been a part of a bunch of awesome adventure films, including the recent Antarctica mountaineering film, Queen Maudland, um, also the award-winning feature documentary about the first all-women team to hike Afghanistan's highest peak. That one's called Ascending Afghanistan, Women Rising. Um, Pablo also had a small role in the film Free Solo, which just won the Oscar for Best Documentary. It's the film where Alex Honnold free solos El Cap. I wanted to get Pablo on the pod because I'd heard about him from different climbers and adventure athletes over the years. Uh, Alex Honnold called him the most interesting man in the world. Cedar Wright called him a total crusher badass. Pablo is the guy these hardcore athletes tap to come film them doing their big outdoor projects. And that's because Pablo is himself an elite athlete, so he can keep up with these guys, but you never see him in front of the camera. He's the guy behind the camera. He's the guy whose amazing footage really brings these films together. What's important with filmmaking is understanding who's in front of the camera, you know, and not ruining their experience. Because ultimately, that's the most important thing. You know, you're making a film, but really, you're dealing with a human who's experiencing something, like, pretty special. And, you know, I don't want to impact that in a negative way. You know, if anything, I hope that what I'm doing will, will help elevate it, you know, afterwards. Pablo was born in Bogota, Colombia. He was raised in Montreal, and he currently lives in Marin, just north of San Francisco. So these days, he's often traveling for work. He's Right now, he's working on a Netflix series called Rotten about the nastier side of global food production. He's also shooting a film about the consequences to local tribes in Chile of lithium mining for lithium-ion batteries. So those are the batteries that power your smartphone and power electric cars. Pablo is also cooking up a passion project right now that sounds fascinating. And we talk about that, and we talk about much more in the pod. So I really hope you guys enjoy it. We'll get to my conversation with Pablo in a moment, but first, this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with filmmaker Pablo Durana. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So you came down from Mill Valley this morning? Yes. Did you come to the city just for this, or were you here already? You know what? I don't get to the city too often, so I try to stack up a bunch of, uh, you know, lunch meetings and yeah. um, went to the climbing gym. So it's nice to come into the city every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you on the podcast because I've talked to a bunch of adventure athletes over the last couple of years, and your name came up, you know, a handful of times, I guess, when we were talking about different projects, different expeditions. And then I, I heard that you lived locally, too, and I was like, oh, got to invite him down, get him on the podcast. The person who most recently described you to me was Cedar Wright, <laughs> actually on the podcast. And he, he, we were talking about Queen Maudland, his film, his Antarctica film. And he told me, and the, I quote, he's the world's most interesting man. That's Which, actually Alex Honnold's quote. Cedar stole it from him. Oh, really? <laughs> plagiarism on the podcast <laughs> well Cedar would do that <laughs> why would somebody why would they say that about you what is what does that make you think I know it's flattering for sure I think I don't tend to focus on one particular thing 
I think what I what what I enjoy about what I do is the variety. Yeah. And so I, I feel as though whenever I'm talking with someone, you know, I'm always doing something different, and it's always, you know, usually something pretty interesting. But yeah, no, I feel really fortunate in, you know, in being in this position. How is it that you <laughs> can be a filmmaker, cinematographer, director of photography on the one hand, but then also on-site these projects, climb the mountains, climb the routes, you know, at the same time that these other guys are doing it or beforehand to get the shot? Like, how do you maintain that level of <laughs> athleticism uh, and, like, still have the focus and the energy to, like, get the right to capture the shot? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think for me that's that's definitely part of the fun is the fact that, you know, you're going to do something that's very difficult and it's just a series of like problem solving, you know, and how do you, how do you solve this problem? You know, there's not a lot of people that have done some of these things before. So you're kind of breaking new territory. You know, I, I've always been athletic, you know, I ran through college and I really think running shaped a lot of who I am because when you're racing, you know, you're on the start line and you know, you're going to suffer, you know, it's going to hurt, you know, it's going to suck, but you keep, you keep going. And as long as you know, you're not going to die, you just keep going. And I, I take that to heart when I'm, you know, on the expeditions where it could be just really grueling. But as long as I feel safe in what I'm doing, as long as I know, you know, I'm not getting frostbite or anything, you know, I can keep going. You know, and then once I have that peace of mind, then I could just focus. Um, and I, I think I just rely on the fact that, you know, I've always been active. I've always been moving. And I feel like I always maintain a, a good base level of, of fitness. Uh, and that allows me to get on these expeditions with these, with these athletes because it, it definitely takes a lot of effort to, to keep up with them. I mean, they're, they're athletes. Um, so for me, it's, it's fun trying to keep up with them. It's fun trying to figure out what's the best way to, to film, you know, their objective without interfering. I think that's the big thing that I try to do is, is not interfere with the process. Cause if I'm interfering, it's, it's not genuine. And so I, I take a lot of time thinking on how, how to best, you know, approach each different scenario. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about some of the specific projects that you've worked on. Um, but first, can you just kind of give a sense of how you got into adventure filmmaking and documentary filmmaking? I've always looked up to my sister. I, I, I say that we're twins, but she's five years older. We're very similar. And I always looked up to, you know, what she was doing. And she was always big on travel. And we'd always, like, scheme on kind of adventures. Uh, we did a hike for five weeks up in India, you know, when I was getting out of high school. And we decided to try to plan something bigger. And independently through both our colleges, we got travel scholarships. And I took a semester off and we biked across China for four months, just the two of us. And that, you know, that did it for me. I mean, I just fell in love with the idea of travel and storytelling and I made it a point to try to pursue that and so the following semester the following summer I got an internship at National Geographic and that's really what opened all the doors for me I met 
some really incredible people that I still work with today. And so it was natural for me to move to Washington, D.C. And at the time, D.C. had a really great documentary community. And I just had a lot of really great mentors. You know, I'd always loved climbing. Uh, so once I left school, I started climbing more. And, you know, just through a series of, I would just say I was lucky. You know, I got to jump on a documentary uh, on Dean Potter. And that was my first big, like, climbing film. And to get to spend, you know, three months with Dean Potter, you know, in an intimate way, it was really special. I mean, he's just just a really fascinating person. Yeah, he seems like it. I've always wanted to, you know, be a director of photography, but I wasn't necessarily uh, impatient in getting there. I really loved the process of, you know, being the assistant, being the sound person, and, and watching what other people do and, and learning from them, learning what to do and what not to do. Um, so it wasn't that, you know, I just want to get here and that's it. You know, it's, it's really been fun, you know, all throughout. And a lot of work, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So when you did that four-month bike trip in China, you said kind of solidified it for you. Were you documenting it? Yeah. So I, I hate public speaking, but at the end, since I got a scholarship, at the end, you had to do a big presentation. So I asked them, instead of speaking, can I just make a video? And they were like, sure. You know, they love the idea. Yeah. So I had a tiny little, you know, handy cam, um, and by then I was I was still I was still shooting film with my camera, so half my bike was just rolls and rolls of DV tapes and films. It was like super heavy and terrifying. <laughs> um, so yeah, I made a, a quick little film, and I guess what I loved about it was when I got home, you know, I talked to people about you know the trip, and you know they like oh wow cool, you know I'd show them photos and they'd be like wow, you know, but then I showed them the video. And I just really loved the reaction I got from them. It was something different than just telling them about it or, sh or showing photos. Yeah. Um, and I just, that's when I knew that I just really loved the idea of storytelling and, and telling other people's stories. What, what was in the video? I mean, the video was, I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. I, mean, I, I shot a lot of everything, so it was more of just like a montage. Okay. But... But it was really special because, you know, my sister and I, I would say 80% of the roads we took were dirt roads. We just wanted, like, really remote places. And, you know, we had no agenda. So we would see a family in the fields. We'd stop and spend a few days working in the fields with them. We'd see a family building their house. We'd stop and help them build their house. Oh, wow. Um, we'd see a, nomads, you know, in the Tibetan plateau milking their yak. We'd stop and start milking their yak and we <laughs> painted a monastery and we we got to you know that monastery we were the first foreigners I'd ever seen and you know I remember one time like all the monks were like pulling my leg hairs because they'd never seen like they'd never seen <laughs> hairy legs and they thought it was hilarious um so it was just little anecdotes that's all it was yeah. it wasn't anything um groundbreaking but it was just a fun glimpse into you know, other people's lives and, and this little adventure that I had with my sister. Yeah. And so how did you take that? What was the first project that you were on that, you know, kind of introduced you to the climbing community, the mountaineering community? Because um, some of you, you know, some of your work, like you had, um, some of your work 
is was in Free Solo. You recently did Queen Maudland, and you're kind of connected with this community now. And I'm just curious how that came about. You know, a few years back, you know, I was doing some work with Vice, and they were going to do through Vice Sports. They were going to do a series of climbing films, and so, you know, they realized, oh, Pablo's a climber, so let's get him on board. Um, it turns out the first one was in Angola with Alex Honnold. Oh yeah, um, and and Stacy Bear, and it was a really really great story, and that's that was my first interaction with Alex, and since then, you know, we kept in contact. That's how I got into the Queen Maudland. You know, he threw my name into the hat as potential filmers, and you know, Cedar called me. We had you know like an hour-long conversation, and by the end he was like, yeah, all right, cool, let's make it work. <laughs> you know, and at that time, I I didn't quite know Jimmy too well. You know, I had helped with Free Solo um, just for a little bit, but, you know, Queen Maudline was really the first time we had the opportunity to just sit down and talk. I mean, half the time you're just sitting down and, and talking, which is part of what I love about expeditions. There's not a lot to do when you're when you're not out there you know just the the mealtime discussions yeah and since then i've done several projects with jimmy which which is great so yeah i mean that's just what i love about this industry is is just you just never know where one job is gonna lead yeah what before we get into anything else what did you, you spent a little bit of time with Jimmy while he was filming and editing Free Solo, right? And since that just won the Academy Award for Best Documentary, I got to ask you about it. What, what did you take away from that process or being involved or, or being, just being around Jimmy kind of during that period when mm-hmm. he was putting that together? I'd say my, my involvement was, was very minimal when Alex was going to do his first attempt because I needed... Um, you know, an extra person, you know, someone that Alex was familiar with. Um, and so he brought me on board almost last minute. You know, I, it was funny. I was filming with Mark Sinnott in Yosemite, and I drove home, got a phone call, and literally an hour later drove back to Yosemite. So I got there at, like, 2 a.m., and at 4 a.m. I was in front of Alex's van, and I walked with Alex uh, and filmed with him, you know, to the base of the climb, you know, getting his shoes on, and then filming him as he, you know, went up and kind of almost disappeared, which was just terrifying. Um, you know, that was pretty much my involvement. And, you know, I, I think, you know, if, if you've seen the film or not, um, you know, on his first attempt, it just, it just seemed like it was too much of a production for him. You know, and I'm glad he stopped. Because, you know, when he actually did it, it was, there was a lot less people around, which was good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting, too, because then, you know, I went to, after Queen Maudland, I went to Patagonia with uh, Jimmy, and we did another project in Greenland. And it was that time that he was really in the, in the, in the thick of it, yeah. you know, in the editing um, and so I, I would just remember, you know, these long conversations that he'd have with, with Chai and, you know, going back and forth with story and, um, angles and, you know, it, he, they really worked hard on it. And yeah, I think it's great that, um, you know, climbing film kind of went beyond, you know, the climbing community that actually, 
told a good story, and it is. It's a really great story. You know, Alex is a very complex character. Um, you know, knowing him personally, it's it's nice to see him portrayed in, in the way he is. Yeah. Does it make you think? Does it does it give you any new ideas about what a climbing film or one of these sport driven adventure films uh, can become or can can mean to a broader audience? I don't know. I, I think if you overthink things, it, it sometimes you know, it gets complicated. Sometimes you just want to tell a good adventure story. And it's great. You know, it could be inspiring for people. Um, and other times you want to have that adventure element in your story, but go beyond the adventure and tell something a little bit, a little bit deeper. You know, and I think there's room for both. I think, like, selfishly, you know, I just love a good adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just fun to kind of shut off the emotional side sometimes and just focus on just the physical um, but I think the, the more rewarding projects I get to work on are the ones that have that emotional element. Yeah. Have you given any thought to being the person in front of the camera? It seems like, you know, since you're out on these expeditions kind of doing like performing in some of the same ways that the athletes are performing, that, you know, there's a case for kind of turning the camera on yourself and documenting your own adventures. Have you ever thought about doing that? Not as much as my mom. <laughs> I feel like she appreciates the behind-the-scenes videos more than the actual film. I don't know. I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I still feel like I don't merit it, or I'm just not as comfortable in front of the camera. I really like being behind the camera. Yeah. Um, I kind of feel like I'm a little awkward. Um, <laughs> I'm, sure yeah, all, I was, I'm sure everybody feels that way, though, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Being in front of a camera is not a natural thing. And I was in front of the camera once... Um, and it just gave me an appreciation for, you know, the people that I'm filming. You know, it's not easy. Um, but I just, I really love what I do. I love creating and, and being behind the camera. Um, but, you know, I, I never say no to opportunities, but I just, I don't think I'm, I'm quite there yet. <laughs> um, so you'd mentioned, you know, that you'll keep doing the work as long as you feel safe. And, you know, given that you filmed in Greenland, in Antarctica, like, what does it take for you? Where, where's that threshold for you? Have you ever come close to it? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if, if there's um, areas where I don't feel safe, like climbing, if I'm, like, on my own, um, like, I won't go. Like, I'll stop. If I feel like my hands or my feet are getting, you know, really, really cold, you know, I'll, I'll stop and make sure that, you know, it's not anything, anything worse than it could be. I've stopped. I've also pushed, you know, there's, there's always, there's that fine line. Yeah. You know, you could never be a hundred percent, but I wouldn't call myself careless. Yeah. Yeah. What was, uh, are there any fun stories that come to mind? So the Queen Maudland is this great film where, um, there's an exp- small expedition, um, of climbers who go to Antarctica, they climb these super jagged, crumbly peaks in the middle of nowhere, essentially. And we see all six of those people. And the one person who's there kind of doing all of these things, uh, but who we never see is you. <laughs> um, and so were there, I guess I wanted to ask if there are any like fun stories that you have from that trip, you know, climbing on these peaks and filming these people in action. Oh, there's endless fun stories. It really was a, an incredible opportunity 
um, I think the, the hard thing for me was um, I, I wanted to film with everyone every day, you know, but there's six people. Um, so it's kind of like deciding, you know, who to film what day and what to focus on. But there was one particular climb, I think one of the last climbs that, that Alex and Cedar were doing that I really wanted to capture because uh, it seemed like it was going to be one of the hardest climbs. And for them, I'm not on the wall with them because they're, they're climbing in a fashion called simul climbing where they're, they're kind of tethered together, but they're both basically climbing at the same time. So there's no way I can climb with them because if I were with them, I would be slowing the process down and that, I just can't do that. Um, with Jimmy and Conrad, they were doing more of a like big wall objective. So they had ropes, you know, strung all around. So I was able to, you know, climb up and kind of be there with them. So it was a little bit different. And so with, with Cedar and Alex, I had to rely on my drone a lot. Yeah. That was the only way I could really get to their level. And drones have a maximum, um, they're set where you, you can't fly 500, you can only fly to a height of 500 meters from where you launch. And so they were climbing and I was doing like test flights to try to anticipate their summit push. And I, I got to 500 meters and I was still a good like 30 meters off from the summit. And I was just like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I, it took me a while. Um, you know, there was one point that I really wanted to get to, but it just, it just seemed beyond... I mean, I felt like I can do it, but it didn't seem as safe as I was comfortable with. But there's another kind of route that I could kind of scramble on. Um, and by then, I mean, Cedar and Alex, they climbed so fast. It started becoming kind of like a race for me, too. Hmm. To, which, to, to get up 30 to get To get to that position, yeah. which that in and of itself, you'll, I also have to like take a step back because when you get that adrenaline, that's also when you start making mistakes. And so for me, it was, it was really exciting, but I don't know, it was, it was push, pushing it a little bit beyond my comfort level, but I still felt good in, in my ability to, to kind of scramble up the 30 meters of rock to what seemed like, I don't know, like a square meter little platform that I can kind of like hold the drone out with my hand <laughs> and launch <laughs> um, so that I can get their summit. Yeah, um, which which I was able to, and and which you know was was pretty satisfying. I mean, I could also talk about the time where Jimmy forgot his gloves, and oh. I had to give him mine. But that's <laughs> oh man. So I'll 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 take some of some of the credit for his summit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody in that film is talking throughout about how, just how cold they are, how cold their extremities are while they're climbing, especially. There was also one thing that I think Cedar mentions. I don't know if it's in the film or not, but but he and I were talking, and he was like, you know, you'd be climbing, and you, <laughs> and behind you, you hear this like as like the drone approaches for you know a flyby or something to get mm -hmm. the shot. Um, and I think you know anybody who has whatever been around one of these drones knows they're like not the quietest. You know, they're, yeah. they're not the quietest yeah. things. So there, were there ever any moments where you were trying to like, you know, you you need to kind of back off, but you also were like, hey, I need to get the shot. That means I need to like be close yeah. to you guys. How's that work? I mean, I feel like I had a good enough relationship with everyone where I was pretty clear that if, if I'm influencing you in a negative way, just let me know and I'll back off. And I wasn't with everyone all the time, 
so I feel like uh, when I was there, we all kind of had that common objective of, you know, they're climbing, but we also want to document. Yeah. Um, so I felt comfortable kind of being close to them in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like if, if it was a project where I'm, I'm flying every single moment of every single climb, you know, that would be a little bit too much. Um, but I think, you know, we all had the understanding. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's difficult being on camera, you know, and I really appreciate how, you know, especially in, in Queen Maudlin, how they, you know, embraced, you know, my presence and allowed me to, you know, to be there close, you know, through the you know, through, through all the hard times. There was this one climb where, um, so historically there's a, like a, a Norwegian um, crew that have established most of the routes there. You know, I, I'm blanking on the name, uh, but they're, you know, really incredible alpinists. I think there was a route that took them maybe like two days to climb and Cedar and Alex did in like four hours. <laughs> I mean, what they're doing is pretty next level. Yeah. Cedar was telling me that there is enough footage on the floor, the cutting room floor, to come out to, to merit a third Sufferfest installment. Do you know anything about that? Um, I think that's definitely on Cedar's mind, and I think there's definitely plenty of, of moments and opportunities. I think Cedar does a pretty good job at, at you know, th- throwing up the camera, um, you know, and just his relationship with Alex is pretty special. You know, it's kind of like an old married couple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's always that line in these where you have to know kind of how much you can, you know, um, exert yourself as a filmmaker without like affecting the outcome or Hmm. while trying not to affect the performance. And that was definitely a theme in Free Solo, right? Like Alex kind of was feeling weird about there being a bunch of people. And I, I know, you know, between Jimmy and Alex, there was this kind of negotiation of like how much communication is there going to be and all of that stuff. So for you, like, what's the sweet spot, or uh, how do you go about ensuring that you know you're, everybody's going to sort of achieve the objective and come out safely? I mean, I, I think everyone's different. I think every objective, every expedition, you have to spend time with the person you're filming, and get that understanding of how close do you want them? Do they want you? How far? Because some people are super embraceive, and it doesn't bother them at all and they're like yeah you can be right up on my face no problem other people will be like you know when I'm doing this I'd rather you kind of be further away um so just communication and it's it's different for everyone and I think that's what's important with filmmaking is understanding who's in front of the camera you know and not ruining their experience because ultimately that's the most important thing you know you're making a film but really you're dealing with a human who's experiencing something like pretty special and you know I don't want to impact that in a negative way you know if anything I hope that what I'm doing will will help elevate it you know afterwards yeah you know yeah uh so what draws you to a project what what is what has to be present what uh elements do you look for that make you stoked to jump on you know your next gig I don't think I have like a, a specific criteria I, I feel fortunate to be in a position now where, you know, I, I, I get to be a little bit more selective in the projects that I work on. And really, it's just intrigue and, like, impact. You know, if something just sounds really cool or really <laughs> interesting, I'm like, why not? Like, that sounds really awesome. And like I said, like, I, I feel like balance is, is an important thing. 
because if I was solely focused on social justice driven stories, you know, that can get very emotional and very, you know, like a weigh on you a lot, you know, so I, I like finding a balance between, you know, telling, you know, those kinds of stories and then also maybe some more lighthearted stories. For me, recently I've been trying to focus more on, you know, socially driven stories that, you know, could have impact and could leave a lasting impression, I guess, you know, could engage a conversation or, or you know, help drive some change. You know, recently, you know, Taylor Reese, um, great director, approached me about this passion project of hers on lithium mining. Yeah. And I had no idea. I, I knew nothing about lithium. All I knew is that I use a lot of lithium. You know, my phone's lithium. Um, all my camera batteries are lithiums. You know, mm-hmm. my, my friends are buying electric cars, you know, saving the world because they're not using fossil fuels. Yeah. But then the more I looked into it, I'm like, whoa, there's, there's a lot going on with lithium mining and the way it's impacting the indigenous community, the way it's impacting the environment. And I was intrigued. I was hooked. And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's go make a film on that. And it's, it's been really eye-opening because there's no, you know, we've, we've gone once and we're planning on going again next month. And there's no clear answer right now on, you know, what the solution is. Mm-hmm. But I feel like telling the story and, and being more educated in, in what's going on can help, you know, drive a conversation to maybe better mining practices or, you know, better understanding on the indigenous community and what they have been suffering and, and you know, what is the what is the best way? Is our electric cars the answer? You know, is there anything that you've seen uh, during the course of this work that you're doing with Taylor in Chile that has given you a new perspective on, you know, the use of these, the use of, of lithium batteries? Like you said, they're more and more like a kind of foundational building block of efforts to go, you know, carbon neutral or to reduce carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. I feel like at this stage, I've really just scratch the surface. There's still a lot for me to learn. But I mean, the big takeaways is obviously lithium is, it's not a renewable source. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's what, what's the lesser of the two evils because you have fossil fuels on one end, which obviously have, you know, a clear impact. Um, and then, you know, lithium batteries are doing good, but I feel like the way in which we're extracting the lithium is not the most responsible way. Mm-hmm. You know, my hope is to try to engage a conversation where we we do take into account the people that are being affected in the mining uh, process and in the environmental impact and are there ways to regulate are there ways to you know be a little bit more responsible in that yeah but I think that's what drew me to this story is I have no idea what the answer is and you know hopefully throughout this process we'll we'll start understanding a little bit better and we'll start getting more people involved and yeah, just starting the conversation. Yeah. What other projects are you working on at the moment? Several. <laughs> yeah. Anything you can talk um, about? Yeah. Is it no, all kind of top abs- secret? No, 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 no. Uh, not top secret at all. I've been working on my own passion project called Joyrider, which I've been filming um, almost for five years now. Whoa. Which is kind of crazy. True um, passion project. It's It's been an incredible passion project. And it's it's been an incredible learning process because it's definitely gotten me out of my comfort zone. You know, I'm used to focusing on, you know, production, you know, and filming. And then, you know, I pass it on to, to someone else to put it together. But mm-hmm. this one, I'm, I'm in the process from the very start to the very beginning. 
Um, and it's exciting. It's, it's, it's challenging, um, and I'm learning a lot. But in a nutshell, it's, it's a story about Andre Kalik, who's a good friend of mine who you know, tragically lost his legs uh, in a train accident um, after a night out drinking. So it's just a really bad night. And, you know, the story follows him through, you know, the process of, you know, acceptance and finding meaning and alcohol abuse. But through a lot of support, he discovered hand cycling. And in a way, he kind of gave up one addiction and and started this other addiction, which Mm. was pretty amazing. You know, within a year, he was like Ironman world champion, like Ultraman. He, He just kept going for like the craziest race that he could think of um and so he he had approached me about this one particular race he really wanted to do called the race across america um, which is a cycling race that happens every year you start on the west coast finish in the east coast um, but they give you 12 days so you're cycling about 250 miles per day for 12 days probably sleeping about two hours um i mean the dropout rate is is huge. Yeah. And no one on a hand cycle had ever qualified. Um, and so Andre wanted to be the first. And it just seemed like such a crazy idea. Um, that I was like, sure, I'll, I'll help document it. And it, it took him three years to qualify. And, um, last year he actually did it. Um, he went all the way across, which was just mind blowing. But what's interesting about Andre is you know, his, his story doesn't really end there. You know, he already has next plans. Um, you know, he wants to do, start the lowest elevation and finish at the highest elevation of each continent. And he's never climbed a mountain before. And he wants to try to figure out how to do it. Whoa. Um, so he's just this incredibly driven person at, a, at an extreme level. And it's, it's interesting for me to try to understand, you know, what's driving him. I think it'll be a good story. Yeah, yeah. what's your hope for the finished product? What, what are you aiming for? I'm, a, I'm definitely aiming for it to be a feature documentary. Yeah, at the, at the moment, it's still at the passion project stage. With a project like that, does the sort of the scope of it or the direction of it, like, reveal itself as you go along? Or do you kind of have an idea when you start out, this is roughly where I want to take it? I mean, I think you have to have an idea when you start, mm-hmm. but I think if you're bound by the idea, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. I think in documentary, the story is what it is. You know, if, if, like, as a friend, I really wanted Andre to finish the race, you know, but as a storyteller, it wasn't important for me, you know, because it's not a racing story. It's a story about Andre, you know, and whatever happens to him, that's what happens to him. And it's your job as a filmmaker to, to tell that story in, in the most compelling way. And so you just have to be flexible and patient, you know, and, and, and if you're trying to force something, I think, you know, people will see through it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you're always constantly reassessing and, and changing, um, you know, and you just never know kind of what they're going to be doing. So you, you just kind of follow the story until you find, you know, maybe a good ending. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like you have that ending? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I think I have the ending. Nice. Um, 
which is exciting because it's it's been five years. <laughs> yeah, how much longer are you gonna give it? I still have a few scenes to film, but I I, I would definitely want to start focusing on just the the editing process. Nice. Um, yeah. I also wanted to ask you, you're Colombian, yeah? Yes. Born in Bogota? Born in Bogota, yeah. Okay. And grew up in Montreal. Grew up in Montreal, okay. Yeah. Uh, do you still have family in Colombia? Oh, yeah. Like, all my family. Okay. My folks still live in Montreal, but all my cousins, uncles, aunts, grandparents, godson, they're, they're all in Colombia. Okay. Colombia, from the little that I've read, seems to be at this kind of interesting juncture with the, like, after the post-FARC peace treaty there has been all of this uh, kind of excitement around the potential development of the tourism industry there, mm-hmm. and specifically like the adventure tourism industry. Um, Colombia's got all this incredible wilderness, jungle, rivers. And so I'm just curious if you've sort of seen, yeah, what, what you've seen in terms of the development of that. Colombia is incredible. I mean, I know I'm biased. <laughs> Sounds awesome. But I try to go two or three times a year. And every time I try to go and explore, you know, someplace new, and I'm always amazed at what I find. And it's really exciting now, you know, we're in a period where it's a lot safer and you can go out. And yeah, there's still bad stuff that happens. You know, there's bad stuff that happens everywhere. Um, but there's a lot of really incredible stuff. This this past winter, I I made a a point to get to know the climbing community. And I met some incredible people. And gosh, even, you know, just a, an hour or two away from Bogota, explored these amazing crags with huge potential for more developing. Um, and, you know, that was exciting. Um, you know, I've just spent time in different national parks and um, they're just really doing amazing things. So it's, I always love going back. Um, it's definitely home. And I love sharing it with, you know, with friends and, uh, and my girlfriend. And, um, yeah, you know, I wish more people can, can check it out. Yeah, it sounds like a great spot. Definitely got to check it out. But I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you got to get back up to Mill Valley. So just wanted to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to have you. This was awesome. Um, I had a great time. Thank you. Thanks again to Pablo for making time to come on the podcast. If you want to follow what he's up to, check out his Instagram at Pablo underscore Durana, D-U-R-A-N-A. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. Our music today is a track called Fuzzy and True by the Mini Vandals, and it comes courtesy of the YouTube Audio Library. See you next time.